Even in this extreme case, you cannot predict how this concern will manifest itself or what ethical considerations might play an intermediate or even determining role. Alexander Solzhenitsyn examined this very problem during the time he spent in the Soviet Gulag Archipelago, the Soviet prison camp system. At the Samarka camp in 1946, a group of intellectuals had reached the very brink of death. They were worn down by hunger, cold, and work beyond their powers, and they were even deprived of sleep. They had nowhere to lie down. Dugout barracks had not yet been built. Did they go and steal, or squeal, or whimper about their ruined lives? No. Foreseeing the approach of death in days rather than weeks, here is how they spent their last sleepless leisure, sitting up against the wall. Timofiev Rosovsky gathered them into a seminar, and they hastened to share with one another what one of them knew and the others did not. They delivered their last lectures to each other. Father Savely spoke of unshameful death, a priest academician about patristics, one of the Uniate Fathers about something in the area of dogmatics and canonical writings, an electrical engineer on the principles of the energetics of the future, and a Leningrad economist on how the effort to create principles of Soviet economics had failed for lack of new ideas. From one session to the next, participants were missing. They were already in the morgue. That is the sort of person who can be interested in all this while already growing numb with approaching death. Now that is an intellectual. Past experience, learning, does not merely condition. Rather, such experience determines the precise nature of the framework of reference or context that will be brought to bear on the analysis of a given situation. This cognitive frame of reference acts as the intermediary between past learning, present experience, and future desire. This intermediary is a valid object of scientific exploration, a phenomenon as real as anything abstracted is real, and is far more parsimonious and accessible as such a phenomenon than the simple, non-interpreted, and non-measurable, in any case, sum total of reinforcement history. Frameworks of reference, influenced in their structure by learning, specify the valence of ongoing experience, determine what might be regarded in a given time and place as good, bad, or indifferent. Furthermore, inferences about the nature of the framework of reference governing the behavior of others, that is, looking at the world through the eyes of another, may produce results that are more useful, more broadly generalizable, as insights into the personality of another, and less demanding of cognitive resources than attempts to understand the details of a given reinforcement history. Valence can be positive or negative, as the early behaviorists noted. Positive and negative are not opposite ends of a continuum, however, not in any straightforward way. The two states appear orthogonal, although perhaps mutually inhibitory. Furthermore, positive and negative are not simple. Each can be subdivided in a more or less satisfactory manner at least once. 
positively valued things, for example, can be satisfying or promising, can serve as consumatory or incentive rewards, respectively. Many satisfying things are consumable in the literal sense, as outlined previously. Food, for example, is a consumatory reward to the hungry, which means that it is valued under such circumstances as a satisfaction. Likewise, water satisfies the individual deprived of liquid. Sexual contact is rewarding to the lustful, and warmth is desirable to those without shelter. Sometimes, more complex stimuli are satisfying or rewarding as well. It all depends on what is presently desired and how that desire plays itself out. A mild verbal reprimand might well foster feelings of relief in the individual who expects a severe physical beating, which is to say, technically, that the absence of an expected punishment can serve quite effectively as a reward. It is, in fact, the form of reward that the tyrant prefers. Regardless of their form, attained satisfactions produce satiation, calm and somnolent pleasure, and temporary cessation of the behaviors directed to that particular end, although behaviors that culminate in a satisfactory conclusion are more likely to be manifested in the future when instinctive or voluntary desire reemerges. Promises, which are also positive, might be regarded as more abstractly meaningful than satisfactions, as they indicate potential rather than actuality. Promises, cues of consumatory rewards or satisfactions, indicate the imminent attainment of something desired or potentially desirable. Their more abstract quality does not make them secondary or necessarily learned, however, as was once thought. Our response to potential satisfaction is often as basic or primary as our response to satisfaction itself. Promises, cues of satisfaction, have been regarded technically as incentive rewards because they induce forward locomotion, which is merely movement toward the place that the cue indicates satisfaction will occur. Curiosity, hope, and excited pleasure tend to accompany exposure to cues of reward and are associated with subsequent forward locomotion. Behaviors that produce promises, like those that result in satisfactions, also increase in frequency over time. Negatively valued things, which have a structure that mirrors that of their positive counterparts, can either be punishing or threatening. Punishments, a diverse group of stimuli or contexts, as defined immediately below, all appear to share one feature, at least from the perspective of the theory outlined in this manuscript. They indicate the temporary or final impossibility of implementing one or more means or attaining one or more ends. Some stimuli are almost universally experienced as punishing because their appearance indicates reduced likelihood of carrying through virtually any imaginable plan of obtaining almost every satisfaction or potential desirable future. Most things or situations that produce bodily injury fall into this category. More generally, punishments might be conceived of as involuntary states of deprivation, 
of food, water, optimal temperature, or social contact, as disappointments or frustrations, which are absences of expected rewards, and as stimuli sufficiently intense to produce damage to the systems encountering them. Punishments stop action or induce retreat or escape, backward locomotion, and engender the emotional state commonly known as pain or hurt. Behaviors which culminate in punishment and subsequent hurt tend to extinguish, to decrease in frequency over time. Threats, which are also negative, indicate potential, like promises, but potential for punishment, for hurt, for pain. Threats, cues of punishment, are stimuli that indicate enhanced likelihood of punishment and hurt. Threats are abstract, like promises. However, like promises, they are not necessarily secondary or learned. Unexpected phenomena, for example, which constitute innately recognizable threats, stop us in our tracks and make us feel anxiety. So, arguably, do certain innate fear stimuli, like snakes. Behaviors that culminate in the production of cues of punishment that create situations characterized by anxiety tend to decrease in frequency over time, much like those that produce immediate punishment. Satisfactions and their cues are good, simply put. Punishments and threats are bad. We tend to move forward to feel hope, curiosity, joy, and then to consume, to make love, to eat, to drink, in the presence of good things, and to pause and feel anxious, then withdraw, move backwards, and feel pain, disappointment, frustration, loneliness, when faced by things we do not like. In the most basic of situations, when we know what we are doing, when we are engaged with the familiar, these fundamental tendencies suffice. Our actual situations, however, are almost always more complex. If things or situations were straightforwardly or simply positive or negative, good or bad, we would not have to make judgments regarding them, would not have to think about our behavior and how and when it should be modified. Indeed, would not have to think at all. We are faced, however, with the constant problem of ambivalence in meaning, which is to say that a thing or situation might be bad and good simultaneously, or good in two conflicting manners, or bad in two conflicting manners. A cheesecake, for example, is good when considered from the perspective of food deprivation or hunger, but bad when considered from the perspective of social desirability and the svelte figure that such desirability demands. The newly toilet-trained little boy who has just wet his bed might well simultaneously feel satisfaction at the attainment of a biologically vital goal and apprehension as to the likely socially constructed interpersonal consequence of that satisfaction. Nothing comes without a cost, and the cost has to be factored in when the meaning of something is evaluated. Meaning depends on context. Context, stories in a word, constitute goals, desires, wishes. It is unfortunate from the perspective of conflict-free adaptation that we have many goals, many stories, many visions of the ideal future and that the pursuit of one often interferes with our chances, 
or someone else's chances of obtaining another. We solve the problem of contradictory meanings by interpreting the value of things from within the confines of our stories, which are adjustable maps of experience and potential whose specific contents are influenced by the demands of our physical being. Our central nervous systems are made up of many hardwired or automatized subsystems responsible for biological regulation, for maintaining homeostasis of temperature, ensuring proper caloric intake, and monitoring levels of plasma carbon dioxide, for example. Each of these subsystems has a job to do. If that job is not done within a certain variable span of time, the whole game comes to a halt perhaps permanently. Nothing gets accomplished then. We must, therefore, perform certain actions if we are to survive. This does not mean, however, that our behaviors are determined, at least not in any simplistic manner. The subsystems that make up our shared structure, responsible when operative for our instincts, thirst, hunger, joy, lust, anger, etc., do not appear to directly grip control of our behavior, do not transform us into driven automatons. Rather, they appear to influence our fantasies, our plans, and alter and modify the content and comparative importance of our goals, our ideal futures, conceived of in comparison to our unbearable presence as they are currently construed. Each basic subsystem has its own particular singular image of what constitutes the ideal, the most valid goal at any given moment. If someone has not eaten in several days, his vision of the immediately desirable future will likely include the image of eating. Likewise, if someone has been deprived of water, she is likely to make drinking her goal. We share fundamental biological structure as human beings, so we tend to agree broadly about what should be regarded as valuable, at least in the specified context. What this means, essentially, is that we can make probabilistic estimates about those things that a given individual and a given culture might regard as desirable at any moment. Furthermore, we can increase the accuracy of our estimates by programmed deprivation because such deprivation specifies interpretive context. Nonetheless, we can never be sure in the complex normal course of events just what it is that someone will want. Judgment regarding the significance of things or situations becomes increasingly complicated when the fulfillment of one biologically predicated goal interferes with the pursuit or fulfillment of another. To what end should we devote our actions, for example, when we are simultaneously lustful and guilty, or cold, thirsty, and frightened? What if the only way to obtain food is to steal it, say, from someone equally hungry, weak, and dependent? How is our behavior guided when our desires compete, which is to say, when wanting one thing makes us likely to lose another or several others? There is no reason to presume, after all, that each of our particularly specialized subsystems will agree at any one time about what constitutes the most immediately desirable good. 
This lack of easy agreement makes us intrinsically prone to intrapsychic conflict and associated affective emotional dysregulation. We manipulate our environments and our beliefs to address this conflict. We change ourselves or the things around us to increase our hope and satisfaction and to decrease our fear and pain. It is up to the higher cortical systems, the phylogenetically newer, more advanced executive portions of the brain, to render judgment about the relative value of desired states, and, similarly, to determine the proper order for the manifestation of means. These advanced systems must take all states of desire into account optimally and determine the appropriate path for the expression of that desire. We make decisions about what is to be regarded as valuable at any given time, but the neurological subsystems that keep us alive, which are singularly responsible for our maintenance in different aspects, all have a voice in those decisions, a vote. Every part of us, kingdom that we are, depends on the healthy operation of every other part. To ignore one good, therefore, is to risk all. To ignore the demands of one necessary subsystem is merely to ensure that it will speak later with the voice of the unjustly oppressed is to ensure that it will grip our fantasy unexpectedly and make of the future something unpredictable. Our optimal paths, therefore, must be properly inclusive from the perspective of our internal community, our basic physiology. The valuations and actions of others, additionally, influence our personal states of emotion and motivation as we pursue our individual goals, inevitably, in a social context. The goal, writ large, toward which our higher systems work, must therefore be construction of a state where all our needs and the needs of others are simultaneously met. This higher goal, to which we all theoretically aspire, is a complex and oft-implicit fantasy, a vision or map of the promised land. This map, this story, this framework of reference or context of interpretation is the ideal future contrasted necessarily with the unbearable present and includes concrete plans designed to turn the latter into the former. The mutable meanings that make up our lives depend for their nature on the explicit structure of this interpretive context. We select what we should value from among those things we must value. Our selections are therefore predictable in the broad sense. This must be as we must perform certain actions in order to live. But the predictability is limited. The world is complex enough, not only so that a given problem may have many valid solutions, but so that even the definition of solution may vary. The particular most appropriate or likely choices of people, including ourselves, cannot, under normal circumstances at least, be accurately determined beforehand. Nonetheless, despite our final and ineradicable ignorance, we act. Judging from moment to moment what is to be deemed worthy of pursuit, determining what can be ignored at least temporarily during that pursuit. 
We are capable of acting and of producing the results we desire because we render judgment of value using every bit of information at our disposal. We determine that something is worth having at a given time and place and make the possession of that thing our goal. And as soon as something has become our goal, no matter what that something is, it appears to adopt the significance of satisfaction, of consumatory reward. It appears sufficient for something to be truly regarded as valuable for it to adopt the emotional aspect of value. It is in this manner that our higher-order verbal cognitive systems serve to regulate our emotions. It is for this reason that we can play or work toward merely symbolic ends. For this reason that drama and literature and even sporting events can have such profound, vicarious effects on us. The mere fact that something is desired, however, does not necessarily mean that its attainment will sustain life as a true satisfaction might, or that pure regard will make something into what it is not. It is therefore necessary, if you wish to exist, that is, to construct goals, models of the desired future, that are reasonable from the perspective of previous experience grounded in biological necessity. Such goals take into account the necessity of coping with our intrinsic limitations, of satisfying our inherited biological subsystems, of appeasing those transpersonal gods who eternally demand to be clothed and fed. The fact that goals should be reasonable does not mean that they have to be, or will be, at least in the short term, or that what constitutes reasonable can be easily or finally determined. One man's meat is another man's poison. The contents of the ideal future and the interpreted present may and do vary dramatically between individuals. An anorexic, for example, makes her goal an emaciation of figure that may well be incompatible with life. In consequence, she regards food as something to be avoided, as something punishing or threatening. This belief will not protect her from starving, although it will powerfully affect her short-term determination of the valence of chocolate. The man obsessed with power may sacrifice everything, including his family, to the attainment of his narrow ambition. The empathic consideration of others, a time-consuming business, merely impedes his progress with regard to those things he deems of ultimate value. His faith in the value of his progress therefore makes threat and frustration even of love. Our beliefs, in short, can change our reactions to everything, even to those things as primary or fundamental as food and family. We remain indeterminately constrained, however, by the fact of our biological limits. It is particularly difficult to specify the value of an occurrence when it has one meaning from one frame of reference, with regard to one particular goal, and a different or even opposite meaning from another equally or more important and relevant frame. Stimuli that exist in this manner constitute unsolved problems of adaptation. They present us with a mystery, which is what to do in their presence, whether to pause, consume, stop, or move backwards or forwards at the most basic of levels, whether to feel anxious, satisfied, hurt, or hopeful. Some things or situations may be evidently satisfying or punishing, at least from the currently extant framework of reference, and can therefore be regarded, 
valued, acted toward in an uncomplicated manner. Other things and situations, however, remain rife with contradictory or indeterminate meanings. Many things, for example, are satisfying or promising in the short term, but punishing in the medium to long term. Such circumstances provide evidence that our systems of valuation are not yet sophisticated enough to foster complete adaptation. Demonstrate to us incontrovertibly that our processes of evaluation are still incomplete. As Michael Patton Jr. wrote, A brain in a vat is at the wheel of a runaway trolley, approaching a fork in the track. The brain is hooked up to the trolley in such a way that the brain can determine which course the trolley will take. There are only two options, the right side of the fork or the left side. There is no way to derail or stop the trolley, and the brain is aware of this. On the right side of the track, there is a single railroad worker, Jones, who will definitely be killed if the brain steers the trolley to the right. If Jones lives, he will go on to kill five men for the sake of thirty orphans. One of the five men he will kill is planning to destroy a bridge that the orphan's bus will be crossing later that night. One of the orphans who will be killed would have grown up to become a tyrant who made good, utilitarian men do bad things. Another would have become John Sununu. A third would have invented the pop-top can. If the brain in the vat chooses the left side of the track, the trolley will definitely hit and kill another railman, Lefty, and will hit and destroy ten beating hearts on the track that would have been transplanted into ten patients at the local hospital who will die without donor hearts. These are the only hearts available, and the brain is aware of this. If the railman on the left side of the track lives, he too will kill five men. In fact, the same five that the railman on the right would kill. However, Lefty will kill the five as an unintended consequence of saving ten men. He will inadvertently kill the five men as he rushes the ten hearts to the local hospital for transplantation. A further result of Lefty's act is that the busload of orphans will be spared. Among the five men killed by Lefty is the man responsible for putting the brain at the controls of the trolley. If the ten hearts and Lefty are killed by the trolley, the ten prospective heart transplant patients will die, and their kidneys will be used to save the lives of twenty kidney transplant patients, one of whom will grow up to cure cancer, and one of whom will grow up to be Hitler. There are other kidneys and dialysis machines available, but the brain does not know this. Assume that the brain's choice, whatever it turns out to be, will serve as an example to other brains in vats, and thus the effects of its decision will be amplified. Also assume that if the brain chooses the right side of the fork, an unjust war, free of war crimes, will ensue, whereas if the brain chooses the left fork, a just war, fraught with war crimes, will result. Furthermore, there is an intermittently active Cartesian demon deceiving the brain in such a way that the brain is never sure that it is being deceived. Question. Ethically speaking, what should the brain do? We cannot act in two ways at one time, cannot move forwards and backwards, cannot stop and go simultaneously. 
When faced with stimuli whose meaning is indeterminate, we are therefore placed in conflict. Such conflict must be resolved before adaptive action may take place. We can actually only do one thing at one time, although we may be motivated by confusing, threatening, dangerous, or unpredictable circumstances to attempt many incommensurate things simultaneously. Unexplored Territory Phenomenology and Neuropsychology The dilemma of contradictory simultaneous meanings can be solved in only two related ways, although it can be avoided in many others. We can alter our behaviors in the difficult situation so that those behaviors no longer produce consequences we do not desire or cannot interpret. Alternatively, we can reframe our context of evaluation, our goals, and our interpretations of the present, so that they no longer produce paradoxical implications with regard to the significance of a given situation. These processes of behavioral modification and reframing constitute acts of effortful revaluation, which means thorough, exploratory reconsideration of what has been judged previously to be appropriate or important. Things or situations with indeterminate meanings therefore challenge our adaptive competence, force us to reevaluate our present circumstances, and alter our ongoing behaviors. Such circumstances arise when something we have under control from one perspective is troublesome or otherwise out of control from another. Out of control means, most basically, unpredictable. Something is beyond us when our interactions with it produce phenomena whose properties could not be determined beforehand. Unexpected or novel occurrences, which emerge when our plans do not turn out the way we hoped they would, therefore constitute an important, perhaps the most important, subset of the broader class of stimuli of indeterminate meaning. Something unexpected or novel necessarily occurs in relationship to what is known, is always identified and evaluated with respect to our currently operative plan, which is to say that a familiar thing in an unexpected place or at an unexpected time is actually something unfamiliar. The wife of an adulterous husband, for example, is well known to him, perhaps, when she is at home. The fact of her and her behavior constitutes explored territory. She is an entirely different sort of phenomenon, however, from the perspective of affect and implication for behavioral output, if she makes an unexpected appearance at his favorite motel room in the midst of a tryst. What will the husband do in his wife's presence when she surprises him? First, he will be taken aback, in all likelihood. Then he will concoct a story that makes sense of his behavior, if he can manage it on such short notice. He has to think up something new, do something he has never done before. He has to manage his wife, who he thinks he has fooled. His wife, whose mere unexpected presence at the motel is proof of her endless residual mystery. Our habitual patterns of action only suffice for things and situations of determinate significance, by definition. We only know how to act in the presence of the familiar. The appearance of the unexpected pops us out of unconscious axiomatic complacency 
and forces us painfully to think. The implications of novel or unpredictable occurrences are unknown by definition. This observation carries within it the seeds of a difficult and useful question. What is the significance of the unknown? It might seem logical to assume that the answer is none. Something unexplored cannot have meaning because none has yet been attributed to it. The truth, however, is precisely opposite. Those things we do not understand nonetheless signify. If you can't tell what something means because you don't know what it is, what, then, does it mean? It is not nothing. We are, in fact, frequently and predictably upset by the unexpected. Rather, it could be anything. And that is precisely the crux of the problem. Unpredictable things are not irrelevant prior to the determination of their specific meaning. Things we have not yet explored have significance prior to our adaptation to them, prior to our classification of their relevance, prior to our determination of their implication for behavior. Things not predicted, not desired, that occur while we are carrying out our carefully designed plans, such things come loaded, a priori, with meaning, both positive and negative. The appearance of unexpected things or situations indicates, at least, that our plans are in error at some stage of their design, in some trivial way, if we are lucky, in some manner that might be devastating to our hopes and wishes, to our self-regard, if we are not. Unexpected or unpredictable things, novel things more exactly, the class of novel things most particularly, have a potentially infinite, unbounded range of significance. What does something that might be anything mean? In the extremes, it means the worst that could be, or at least the worst you can imagine, and conversely, the best that could be, or the best you can conceive of. Something new might present the possibility for unbearable suffering followed by meaningless death a threat virtually unbounded in significance. That new and apparently minor, but nonetheless strange and worrisome ache you noticed this morning, for example, while you were exercising, might just signify the onset of the cancer that will slowly and painfully kill you. Alternatively, something unexpected might signify inconceivable opportunity for expansion of general competence and well-being. Your old, boring, but secure job unexpectedly disappears. A year later, you are doing what you really want to do, and your life is incomparably better. An unexpected thing or situation appearing in the course of goal-directed behavior constitutes a stimulus that is intrinsically problematic. Novel occurrences are, simultaneously, cues for punishment, threats, and cues for satisfaction, promises. This paradoxical a priori status is represented schematically in Figure 5, the ambivalent nature of novelty. Unpredictable things which have a paradoxical character accordingly activate two antithetical emotional systems whose mutually inhibitory activities provide basic motivation for abstract cognition. 
whose cooperative endeavor is critical to the establishment of permanent memory, and whose physical substrates constitute universal elements of the human nervous system. The most rapidly activated of these two systems governs inhibition of ongoing behavior, cessation of currently goal-directed activity. The second, equally powerful but somewhat more conservative, underlies exploration, general behavioral activation, and forward locomotion. Operation of the former appears associated with anxiety, with fear and apprehension, with negative affect, universal subjective reactions to the threatening and unexpected. Operation of the latter, by contrast, appears associated with hope, with curiosity and interest, with positive affect, subjective responses to the promising and unexpected. The process of exploring the emergent unknown is therefore guided by the interplay between the emotions of curiosity, hope, excitement on the one hand, and anxiety on the other, or, to describe the phenomena from another viewpoint, between the different motor systems responsible for approach, forward locomotion, and inhibition of ongoing behavior. The ambivalent unknown comes in two forms, so to speak, as alluded to earlier. Normal novelty emerges within the territory circumscribed by the choice of a particular endpoint or goal, which is to say, after getting to specific point B has been deemed the most important possible activity at this time and in this place. Something normally novel constitutes an occurrence which leaves the current departure point and goal intact, but indicates that the means of achieving that goal have to be modified. Let us say, for example, that you are in your office. You are accustomed to walking down an unobstructed hallway to get to the elevator. You are so used to performing this activity that you can do it automatically. So, you often read while walking. One day, while reading, you stumble over a chair someone left in the middle of the hallway. This is normal novelty. You don't have to alter your current goal except in a temporary and trivial manner. You are not likely to get too upset by the unexpected obstacle. Getting to the elevator is still a real possibility, even within the desired time frame. All you have to do is walk around the chair, or move it somewhere else if you are feeling particularly altruistic. Figure 6, Emergence of Normal Novelty in the Course of Goal-Directed Behavior, provides an abstracted representation of this process of trivial adaptation. Revolutionary novelty is something altogether different. Sometimes the sudden appearance of the unexpected means taking path B to Grandma's house instead of path A. Sometimes that appearance means emergent doubt about the very existence of Grandma. Think Wolf and Red Riding Hood. Here is an example. I am sitting alone in my office in a high-rise building at night. I suddenly fantasize. I'm going to take the elevator down three floors and get something to eat. More accurately, hunger suddenly grips my imagination and uses it for its own purposes. This fantasy constitutes a spatially and temporally bounded image of the ideal future, an actual possible future carved out as a discriminable and thus usable object 
from the infinite domain of potential possible futures. I use this definite image to evaluate the events and processes that constitute the interpreted present as it unfolds around me as I walk toward the elevator on my way to the cafeteria. I want to make reality match my fantasy, to subdue my motivation, to please the gods, so to speak. If the unexpected occurs, say, the elevator is not operating, the mismatch temporarily stops me. I replace my current plan with an alternative behavioral strategy designed to obtain the same end. This means that I do not reconfigure the temporally and spatially bounded map that I am using to evaluate my circumstances, that I am using to regulate my emotions. All I have to do is change strategy. I decide to take the stairs to the cafeteria. If the stairs are blocked by construction, I am in more serious trouble. My original fantasy, go down to the cafeteria and eat, was predicated on an implicit presumption. I can get downstairs. This presumption, which I wasn't really even aware of, which might be regarded as axiomatic for the purposes of the current operation, has been violated. The story, go downstairs to eat, retained its function only in an environment characterized by valid means of between-floor transportation. The existence of these means constituted a given. I had used the elevator or the stairs so often that their very presence took on the aspect of a justifiably ignored constant. Once I had mastered the stairs or the elevator, once I had learned their location, position, and mechanisms, I could take them for granted and presume their irrelevance. Predictable phenomena, read, thoroughly explored and therefore adapted to, do not attract attention. They do not require consciousness. No new behavioral strategies or frameworks of reference must be generated in their presence. Anyway, the elevators are broken. The stairs are blocked. The map I was using to evaluate my environment has been invalidated. My ends are no longer tenable. In consequence, necessarily, the means to those ends, my plans to go to the cafeteria, have been rendered utterly irrelevant. I no longer know what to do. This means, in a non-trivial sense, that I no longer know where I am. I presumed I was in a place I was familiar with. Indeed, many familiar things, the fact of the floor, for example, have not changed. Nonetheless, something fundamental has been altered, and I don't know how fundamental. I am now in a place I cannot easily leave. I am faced with a number of new problems, in addition to my unresolved hunger, at least in potential. Will I get home tonight? Do I have to get someone to rescue me? Who could rescue me? Who do I telephone to ask for help? What if there was a fire? My old plan, my old story, I am going downstairs to get something to eat, has vanished, and I do not know how to evaluate my current circumstances. My emotions, previously constrained by the existence of a temporarily valid plan, re-emerge in a confused jumble. I am anxious. What will I do? What if there was a fire? Frustrated, 
I'm certainly not going to get any more work done tonight under these conditions. Angry. Who could have been stupid enough to block all the exits? And curious. Just what the hell is going on around here, anyway? Something unknown has occurred and blown all my plans. An emissary of chaos, to speak metaphorically, has disrupted my emotional stability. Figure 7. Emergence of revolutionary novelty in the course of goal-directed behavior graphically presents this state of affairs. The plans we formulate are mechanisms designed to bring the envisioned perfect future into being. Once formulated, plans govern our behavior until we make a mistake. A mistake, which is the appearance of a thing or situation not envisioned, provides evidence for the incomplete nature of our plans, indicates that those plans and the presumptions upon which they are erected are in error and must be updated, or, heaven forbid, abandoned. As long as everything is proceeding according to plan, we remain on familiar ground. But when we err, we enter unexplored territory. What is known and what unknown is always relative, because what is unexpected depends entirely on what we expect, desire, on what we had previously planned and presumed. The unexpected constantly occurs because it is impossible, in the absence of omniscience, to formulate an entirely accurate model of what actually is happening or of what should happen. It is impossible to determine what results ongoing behavior will finally produce. Errors in representation of the unbearable present and the ideal desired future are inevitable in consequence, as are errors in implementation and representation of the means by which the former can be transformed into the latter. The infinite human capacity for error means that encounter with the unknown is inevitable in the course of human experience means that the likelihood of such encounter is as certain, regardless of place and time of individual existence, as death and taxation. The variable existence of the unknown, paradoxically enough, can therefore be regarded as an environmental constant. Adaptation to the existence of this domain must occur, therefore, in every culture and in every historical period, regardless of the particulars of any given social or biological circumstance. Deviations from desired outcome constitute relatively novel events, indicative of errors in presumption, either at the level of analysis of current state, process, or ideal future. Such mismatches, unpredictable, non-redundant, or novel occurrences, constantly comprise the most intrinsically meaningful interesting elements of the human experiential field. This interest in meaning signifies the presence of new information and constitutes a prepotent stimulus for human and animal action. It is where the unpredictable emerges that the possibility for all new and useful information exists. It is during the process of exploration of the unpredictable or unexpected that all knowledge and wisdom is generated, all boundaries of adaptive competence extended, all foreign territory explored, mapped, and mastered. The eternally extant domain of the unknown, therefore, constitutes the matrix from which all conditional knowledge emerges.
everything presently known to each, everything rendered predictable, was at one time unknown to all and had to be rendered predictable, beneficial at best, irrelevant at worst, as a consequence of active, exploration-driven adaptation. The matrix is of indeterminable breadth. Despite our great storehouse of culture, despite the wisdom bequeathed to us by our ancestors, we are still fundamentally ignorant and will remain so, no matter how much we learn. The domain of the unknown surrounds us like an ocean surrounds an island. We can increase the area of the island, but we never take away much from the sea. Exploration Phenomenology and Neuropsychology The unfamiliar exists as an invariant feature of experience. We remain ignorant and act while surrounded by uncertainty. Just as fundamentally, however, we always know something, no matter who we are or when we live. We tend to view the environment as something objective, but one of its most basic features, familiarity or lack thereof, is something virtually defined by the subjective. This environmental subjectivity is non-trivial as well. Mere interpretation of a phenomenon can determine whether we thrive or sicken, live or die. It appears, indeed, that the categorization or characterization of the environment as unknown-slash-known, nature-slash-culture, foreign-slash-familiar, might be regarded as more fundamental than any objective characterization. If we make the presumption that what we have adapted to is, by definition, reality. For it is the case that the human brain, and the brain of higher animals, has specialized for operation in the domain of order and the domain of chaos. And it is impossible to understand the fact of this specialization unless those domains are regarded as more than mere metaphor. We normally use our conceptions of cognitive processes to illuminate the working of the brain. We use our models of thought to determine what must be the case physiologically. However, neuropsychological investigation has advanced to the point where the reverse procedure is equally useful. What is known about brain function can illuminate our conceptions of cognition, indeed of reality itself, and can provide those conceptions with suitable objective constraints. Enlightenment thought strove to separate reason and emotion. Empirical investigations into the structure and function of the brain given great initial impetus by the consequences of that separation, have demonstrated instead that the two realms are mutually interdependent and essentially integral. We live in a universe characterized by the constant interplay of yang and yin, chaos and order. Emotion provides us with an initial guide when we don't know what we are doing, when reason alone will not suffice. Cognition by contrast, allows us to construct and maintain our ordered environments and keep chaos and affect in check. The brain may be usefully regarded as composed of three primary units, motor, sensory, and affective, or as constituting a matched pair of hemispheres, right and left. Each manner of conceptual subdivision has its theoretical advantages.
Furthermore, the two are not mutually exclusive. We will attend to the description of the units portrayed schematically in Figure 8, the motor and sensory units of the brain, first. Most neocortical and many subcortical structures have attained their largest and most complex level of development in Homo sapiens. This is true in particular of the motor unit, which comprises the anterior or forward half of the comparatively newer neocortex and which is composed of the motor, premotor, and prefrontal lobes. This level of heightened development accounts in part for increased human intelligence, behavioral versatility, and breadth of experience, both actual and potential, and underlies our capacity to formulate plans and intentions, organize them into programs of action, and regulate their execution. The sensory unit, which comprises the posterior half of the neocortex, and which is composed of the parietal, occipital, and temporal lobes, is responsible for the construction of the separate worlds of our sensory systems, primarily sight, hearing, and touch, and for their integration into the unified perceptual field that constitutes our conscious experience. The sensory unit processes the information generated in the course of the actions planned by the motor unit and builds the world of the recognizable and familiar out of that information. The limbic unit, finally, phylogenetically ancient, tucked under the folds of the neocortex, compares the nature of behavioral consequences as they occur with a dynamic model extant in fantasy of what was supposed to occur, what was desired to happen. It is, therefore, signaling of motivational significance or affective importance that constitutes what is perhaps the major responsibility of the limbic system, that and the integrally related inculcation and renewal of memory integrally related, as it is significant events that transform knowledge that are stored in memory, more accurately, that alter memory. This process of signaling necessarily involves comparison of the undesirable present, as currently understood, with the ideal future, as currently imagined. The capacity to generate such a contrast appears dependent upon operations undertaken deep within the comparatively ancient central portion of the brain, particularly in the tightly integrated structures known as the hippocampus and amygdala. The nature of this comparative process can perhaps best be understood in introduction through consideration of a phenomenon known as the event-related cortical potential. The brain constantly produces a shifting pattern of electrical activity in the course of its operations. The electroencephalogram, the EEG, provides a rough picture of that pattern. The individual undergoing EEG examination has electrodes placed in an array on his scalp. These electrodes allow the patterns of electrical activity generated in the course of neurological activity to be detected, monitored, and to some degree, localized. The brain produces enough electrical activity to be detected through the skull and tissue surrounding it, although the interference produced by that surrounding tissue makes evaluation of the EEG difficult. 
The rather limited capacities of EEG technology have been greatly extended by the analytic capacities of the computer. The cortical event-related potential is a measure of brain activity derived by computer from EEG recordings averaged at different delays after the subject being evaluated has been presented with some sort of stimulus. The nature of this stimulus may vary. In the simplest case, it is merely something sensory, like a tone presented repeatedly through stereo headphones. In more complex cases, the event-related potential is monitored following presentation of a stimulus with affective valence, which means following something that must be discriminated, recognized, or otherwise evaluated. Perhaps the simplest way to produce an event of this sort is to randomly and rarely insert a tone that differs in frequency into a repetitious sequence of otherwise predictable tones, although the stimulus might just as easily be visual or tactile. These oddball events are characterized by relative novelty. Novelty is always relative, and evoke a pattern of cortical electrical activity that differs from that produced by the predictable tones. Any event that has specific or known implications for alteration in ongoing behavior will also produce a potential like the oddball. The average cortical event-related potential produced by infrequent or otherwise meaningful events is a waveform with a characteristic time course and shape. Most attention has been paid to elements of this waveform that occur within the first half-second. 500 milliseconds after stimulus occurrence. As the first half second passes, the polarity of the waveform shifts. Peaks and valleys occur at different, more or less standard times and in essentially predictable locations and have therefore been identified and named. Event-related potentials, ERPs, are negative, N, or positive, P, depending on polarity, and are numbered according to their occurrence in time. The earliest aspects of the ERP, less than 200 milliseconds, vary with change in the purely sensory quality of an event. The waveforms named N200, negative, 200 milliseconds, and P300, positive, 300 milliseconds, by contrast, vary with the affective significance and magnitude of the stimulus and can even be evoked by the absence of an event that was expected but that did not appear. The psychophysiologist Eric Hallgren states, One may summarize the cognitive conditions that evoke the N2P3 as being the presentation of stimuli that are novel or that are signals for behavioral tasks and thus need to be attended to and processed. These evoking conditions and functional consequences are identical to those that have been found for the orienting reflex. Holgren considers the N2P3 and the autonomic orienting reflex, quote, different parts of an overall organismic reaction complex evoked by stimuli that merit further evaluation, end quote. He terms this overall response pattern the orienting complex. 
A substantial body of evidence suggests that the amygdalic and hippocampal systems are critically involved in production of the N2P3 waveforms, although other brain systems also participate. It is also of great interest to note that an additional waveform, the N4, is produced when human experimental subjects are exposed to abstracted symbols with integral significance, such as written, spoken, or signed words and faces in a meaningful context. In such a context,